Welcome, everyone. My name is Minoush Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I wanted to welcome all of you to this event with Inga Anderson on solutions for a planet in crisis. Now, the world is clearly in the midst of a major crisis, and most people are currently focused on the coronavirus pandemic and its economic and social aftermath. But of course, the crisis of climate change, biodiversity loss, and the threats to our ecological sustainability are arguably much, much worse. They're more long-term, they're more fundamental, and they cannot be fixed with a vaccine. So clearly we must act, and the political momentum for action has probably never been greater, in part thanks to the efforts of young people around the world. Now, there are a few people in the world who are better positioned to guide us on what the solutions to the current crisis are than our guests today. Inger Anderson is Under Secretary General of the United Nations and Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Program, headquartered in Nairobi. Between 2015 and 2019, Inger was Director General of the International Union for Conservation of Nature. She has more than 30 years of experience in international development economics, environmental sustainability, strategy, and operations. Between 1999 and 2014, she held several leadership positions at the World Bank, where she and I had the pleasure of working together for many, many years. She was vice president for the Middle East and North Africa and also vice president for sustainable development. And before that, she had a long career in the United Nations. Now, Inga is going to speak to us today about how we can how we can do more to democratize decision making around sustainability, how the private sector and governments can do a better job of, of measuring and recognizing the true value of nature, and how all of us can better address the interconnected agendas that could make our world more sustainable. She'll speak for about 20 to 25 minutes, and then we'll have a Q&A moderated by my colleague, Dr. Thomas Smith of our Department of Geography and the Environment. Just a few other housekeeping matters for those of you who are on Twitter. The hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSEUNEP, and this online event is being recorded and will be available as a podcast afterwards. As usual, there'll be an opportunity for questions to Inga after this. Please submit them through the Q&A function and also feel free to vote for those questions that you would prioritize having answered. And Dr. Thomas Smith will pose as many of them as we can in the time available. And so it gives me huge pleasure to introduce my former colleague and current friend, Inga Anderson. Inga, over to you. Well, thank you so very much. And it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here today. And so to you, Baroness Shafiq Minouche, it's a pleasure to be here to London School of Economics. I really want to thank you for this invitation to speak about these planetary crises that we face and what we have to do to solve them together. Um, because you rightly introduced the scenarios and the, and the issues that we're facing. Because right now, of course, COVID is front and center of our concerns. Uh, the pandemic has devastated our lives and, and our economies. It has highlighted um, the income inequalities with the rich growing richer in many countries and the poor growing poorer. And it has put in sharp relief the environmental inequalities facing minorities. But as we seek to overcome this terrible pandemic, we have to do so in the knowledge that it is not something that we can just fish, fix, wash our hands off and return to normal, because it is normal that brought us where we are today. The pandemic has shown that we must rethink our very relationship with nature, as it is our destruction of wild spaces, which is implicated in the emergence of the many diseases that jump from animals to humans, such as COVID-19. Fundamentally, the pandemic is a warning from the planet that unless we change our ways, much worse lies in store. It's a warning that we must heed. It's, it, it's after years of prom promise, but not enough action. We must finally now hear that warning and get on top of these three planetary crises that threaten our collective future. The climate crisis, the biodiversity and nature crisis, and the pollution and waste crisis. Today, I would like to talk about how we can overcome these three existential crises, which threaten all of humanity. But first, 
I'd like to briefly outline a little bit about the science behind each of these. And let me start with the climate crisis, because even as we were scrolling the news feed about fear and information about the pandemic, 2020 and climate change didn't let up. 2020 was a breaking even, was, was a year where we broke even with both 2016 uh, as the hottest year on record since we began having records. And the impacts of climate change are all around us. 2020, we saw Atlantic hurricane season with more storms than ever recorded. We saw plagues of locusts from Yemen to East Africa devouring our crops. We saw right now 2 billion people living in water stress. We've seen wildfires, floods, droughts, which have become so commonplace that many times they don't even make the news. And then there is the water, the, the biodiversity and nature crisis. Because even as we talk in climate, we have to look at nature too, where our existence threatens nature severely. Nature is declining at an unprecedented speed. Around 1 million species out of the about 7.8 million that exist on our planet are facing extinction. Humans have altered about 75% of the terrestrial surface of our planet, and we have altered about 66% of our oceans. But while nature has intrinsic value, we also need to understand that nature's loss is more than losing an orchid here or a butterfly there. Because as we degrade our ecosystems, we are chipping away at the very foundations that make life possible. Food, rainfall, temperature regulation, economic growth, pollination, the roofs of our heads, the clothes we wear, just to name but a few of nature's services to us. And then on the uh, on the issue of waste and pollution, there is that toxic trail of our economic growth. Every year, pollution causes millions of premature deaths. Around one third of all rivers in Latin America, Asia, and Africa suffer from severe pollution. We throw away 50 million tons of electronic waste every year, roughly equal to the weight of all commercial airlines ever made. And the pandemic is obviously worsening the waste problem with millions of disposable masks and PPE, which we need, making its way into the garbage stream. Now, we have known about these problems for some time, but the sad truth is that the world hasn't acted enough or strongly enough on the science before us. And that implies to the three planetary crises and to every international agreement from the Sustainable Development Goals to the Paris Agreement to the Biodiversity Convention. Promises have been made. But now is the age of promises behind us. Now is the era of action. As the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said in the State of the Planet speech that he gave in December of 2020, making peace with nature is a defining task of the 21st century. But the question is how to make that happen. And today I want to focus, as Minouche mentioned, on four areas where we can act the economic and business sphere, governance, science, and our everyday lives. So let me start first with economy and business, because the starting point for economy and for making economic and business decisions that address the three planetary crises instead of short-term gain, and bring that brings long-term pain, as we know, is to recognize the true value of nature and the Earth's systems that regulate our seasons, our weather, our rainfall, and assures our very existence on this planet. And here it's useful to reference that Her Majesty's Treasury commissioned last year the Dasgupta Review on the Economics of Biodiversity, which will come out soon. And that review makes it clear that human health and prosperity cannot happen without nature. Over half of the gross, uh, global gross domestic product depends on nature, never mind the services that nature provides free of charge, such as climate regulation, water filtering, protection against natural disasters, and so on. So protecting nature and the climate and limiting pollution and waste 
is not only smart economic decision, but quite frankly, a non-negotiable for future economic prosperity. But somehow this seems to be a lesson that many have yet to learn. And it's confounding to me because when we consider just a few numbers to make this point, both of the economic harm of eroding nature, as well as the benefit from conserving it, it should be glaringly obvious that the old understanding that it's economy versus environment just doesn't hold true. The Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, referred to as IPBES, which is essentially the twin sister to the science-based uh, UN IPCC for climate. In, in 2018, IPBES found that land degradation and biodiversity loss was costing the world 10% that it sliced off GDP globally each year in lost ecosystem services. Now, we know that produced uh, capital, human capital, um, such as roads and skills, etc., has increased by 13% since the early 1990s. But that increase in our wealth has come at an expense of our natural wealth, our natural capital, the planet's stock of renewable and non-renewable resources, which has declined by 40% in the same period. The WEF's Global Risk Report 2020 ranked biodiversity and ecosystem collapse as one of the top five risks we will face within the next 10 years. And on the other hand, of course, ecosystems and biodiversity can bring huge economic benefits. Um, overall, the business opportunities from transforming the food, the land and the ocean systems could generate $3.6 trillion of additional revenue while creating hundreds of millions of jobs. So any way we slice and dice it, nature, says Dr. Uh, says Sir Pata Descupta, is an asset, an asset class, class that we need to think about. And we are eating into it much faster than it can regenerate. And so to fix this error, we need to ensure that nature enters economic and financial decision making. We can't assume that it is a free public good. The best way to assure that is one of the key ways is to move away from GDP as an indicator and use an inclusive wealth measure that measures all forms of capital. And the same kind of economics applies to limiting and adapting to climate change and to reducing pollution and waste. Just to give one or two examples, the Global Commission on Economy and Climate um, spoke, told us that transitioning to low carbon growth could generate some 26 trillion and generate and create over 65 million jobs by 2030. So like I said, tackling the three planetary crises is a smart decision for economies and business. Second area I want to talk about is governance. Yes, the world has made many promises through the Sustainable Development Goals, through the Paris Agreement, through international goals on biodiversity and through goals on chemicals and pollution. But we haven't done enough to move beyond the good intentions across the board. And let me give a few examples, because promises alone are not enough. Five years ago, nations arrived at this historic agreement in Paris to limit global warming this century to well below two degrees and to pursue 1.5. And knowing the data, I can tell you 1.5 is where we want to land. Now, yet our UNEP's emissions gap report of 2020, December, tells us that the pledges and actions under the Paris Agreement has to get much stronger this year, or we are set towards a rise of over three degrees this century. So the pandemic-linked economic slowdown that many people are considering because surely we saw a dip in greenhouse gas emissions, yes, that did happen, but it will have a very, very, very negligible next to no impact on global long-term temperatures because if you like, the CO2 bathtub was already full. So turning off the tap for a couple of seconds does not make it empty now. To get back on a two on track for a two degree world, we have no choice but to cut one third of our emissions off by 2030. And if we want to, and we really do aim for the 1.5 degree world, we have to halve our emissions. 
And we have a similar position with biodiversity. In 2010, we agreed on a series of biodiversity targets that we had said we would reach by 2020. And by 2020, we have reached none of them, none. So to catch up, governments must now act on three fronts. They must deliver on commitments made. They must strengthen and better focus their commitments. And they must ensure that action on these three crises are joined up. And on the first point about what they have to do on, on delivery, clearly the post-pandemic recovery is a great way to speed up delivery. Because every bit of UNEP research that we have produced in the recent months show us that the pandemic recovery stimulus packages are this massive opportunity. Never before have we put so much money, public money, into the economy. And we have done a number of calculations show the potential to cut by over or around 25% our emissions by 2030 if we green these stimulus packages. That would mean clearly ensuring that we do not borrow from the future generation and then leave them both with a broken planet and a mountain of debt. What we therefore need to do is to put money into decarbonization, into nature positive agriculture, into sustainable infrastructure, into climate change adaptation measures that protect the vulnerable, etc. That's our target that we have to do. Make those green, make those recovery packages, stimulus packages green, if you like, on all fronts, on all three crises. But the other point that governments have to do is take stronger and smarter and more trackable commitments right now. In the 2021, the next climate meeting COP that we will have in Glasgow, COP26, uh, we would want to see trackable commitments. The same goes for the COP15 of biodiversity, which will happen in China next year. A global framework for the sound management of chemicals is also something we will agree on next year. And again, making that trackable. Um, and so we need to be careful, though, not making just promises, because like the person who pledges on January 1st to run a marathon by the end of the year, we have to get ready for that race. Net zero commitments have been made and we celebrate that. But we cannot wait to turn these net zero commitments by 2050 into strong near-term policies with time-bound commitments that deliver action on the ground. They must be included in what are called the NDCs, the National Determined Contributions, which are essentially the plans that countries will submit under Paris every five years. So let's submit stronger, more determined NDCs and ensuring that we fold in the stimulus promises there, therein. And the same for biodiversity. We need to ensure that these targets are made, that we shift towards better managed conservation areas, that we deliver po nature positive agriculture and fisheries, that we end harmful subsidies, that we move to sustainable patterns of production and consumption. And the same goes for chemicals, which should be fairly obvious. We need chemicals in our economy, but we have to do so safely. And we can do so because look what we did with the ozone depleting substances under the Montreal Protocol that UNEP is proud to host. We are closing the ozone holes, but that is through involving nations and businesses together, uh, finding the solutions. And so finally then on, on the point of what governments can do, they also need to act in a joint up manner between governments, business communities, and as citizens, of course. And just to think about what that means, a cooler climate, understanding that if we work on cooling the climate, that will protect biodiversity, that will slow desertification, that will conserve nature, that will drive down poverty, that will live, uh, help provide healthier lives and a healthier nature, that will store carbon, that will create buffers to impact on climate change, and each one reinforces the other. Governments need to understand this and not delegate to the ministries of environment or one department or the other, but have an all of government dimension to the action plans that they roll out. Now, let me roll, uh, speak to the next area that I wanted to speak about, which was science. Because a wide awareness of the issue and the promises made to address these issues, science has in a way done its job. Science has spoken. But like with good economics, 
it needs to also get into policy. So we can and do and must, uh, we can and must do better. Science has to seek and speak out and understand diverse opinions and experiences. And here, I think we have to accept that like with economics, science has not done as good a job as it could have. Science and the world has been woken up to covert, overt, quiet, blind racism, sexism, white privilege. And it's important that science of today understands the bias that it carries with it and tackles the realities and the histories of the community that it touches. We at UNEP work in science and we are very much aware of this. And so we are seeking to work to make science open, make it accessible and make it available to all. We have to digitize scientific knowledge and democratize its availability so that people can access it, understand it and use it. Ensuring that science speaks within the four walls of our homes is also critical. Without strong science that travels, we cannot influence sustainable, or sorry, unsustainable consumption and production patterns, which we understand underpin our planetary crisis. So people need to understand the impact that they have on the planet. And that leads me to the fourth area that I wanted to speak to, which is the personal responsibility that each one of us carries. Because often when I speak, people say, yes, but this is so big that my actions don't matter. So let me disabuse you of that notion. The fact is that if we live in the developed world, our planetary health, um, we are impacting on the planetary health. Unless we live off grid and we grow our own food and we live from and with a rain rainwater uh, water that we've harvested and we don't travel, which we don't to most of us. So two thirds, two thirds of all greenhouse gas emissions are linked to private households. While our growing demands of food and materials are stripping the earth bare. So right now we require 1.6 earths to maintain the current population and living standards. And of course, living standards are rising as they should because many people uh, need to move beyond the poverty that in which they are now living, which means that there is an onus of an, on, on those of us living wealthier lives, globally speaking, because in part, this is an equity issue. The combined emissions of the richest 1% of the global population account for more than twice of the poorest 50%. Let that sink in for a moment. This global elite have no alternatives but to reduce our footprint and significantly very significantly, so that we can stay within the Paris targets. And just to be clear, an annual salary of $40,000 puts you in the top 10 of global earners, while around $110,000 puts you in the top 1%. So the top 1%, the global elite, is at 110000 which means that each one of us um, whether we are in the top 10 or what have you, have a responsibility. So we're not talking about the mega wealth, wealthy. We're talking about a responsibility that falls on us all. So each one of us have to look at our own lives. And I'm not here going to list everything that we can do because information is freely available. Let's be honest. Most of us know what we must do from avoiding single-use plastic to avoiding food waste to being mindful of our travel and dietary choices etc cetera, etc cetera, and our overall footprint and i understand that we have a systems problem and it can be difficult to make choices that are good for the planet particularly for those who struggle to make ends meet but societies our societies do depend heavily on fossil fuels monoculture crops wasteful packaging and so much more but it is essential that we change that system we do that politically we do that also by the individual choices and by voting with our pound bills, our dollar bills, our euros. This will take time, but until then, we have to do what we can within the constraints of our circumstances, no matter how small, to change our lifestyles. So friends, there's no doubt that we have made progress of environmental issues in the last few decades, um, and we've made more commitments than ever. We've more, we have more solutions available to us than ever. Business and investors are, beginning to step up. Renewable energy is widespread and cheaper. 
public awareness is at, at an all-time high. But climate change, nature loss, pollution and waste continue to outpace our efforts. We can only overtake them if we speed up ourselves. That is the key task for 2021 and for the years that follow. We can and must do it. COVID-19 has shown how quickly we can change our habits when we have to. Bold leadership, tough decisions, and dedicated financing have saved lives and brought us to the point where, within a year, vaccination programs are rolling out and where we can begin to imagine a way out of the pandemic. That same ingenuity, that same determination, that same commitment, that is what we now must draw on deeply to overcome what are really existential threats to humanity and the planet um, on which we hold so much sway. So real, meaningful and determined action to halt and reverse those three planetary crises is not just a smart option, it is the only option. If we want our economies and our businesses, our societies, and of course our families to thrive, uh, and those that come after us to thrive, we have to take that action and to take it now. I thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, In Inger. If I may, I'm going to jump in and ask the first question, and then I'll turn to Thomas to uh, to share some questions from the audience, of which we have very, very many. I think we're up to 34. So I'm going to be quick. I have two questions, one around governance and one around trade. You lay out such a compelling uh, argument for why action is needed and what we can do. I wanted to ask you about governance and accountability and how this time we won't just have New Year's resolutions to lose weight and nobody actually doing the proper work. Um, and our current system of holding countries to account for the commitments they make is, is frankly, I think, inadequate. What would you like to see in its place going forward? And my second question is around uh, border taxes, around carbon. The European Union is, has committed to proceeding to implement carbon taxes at the border to, as, both, as a way to level the playing field when it implements carbon taxes itself, but also, I think, to pressure other countries to do something around carbon taxation. What do you think about that? Well, these are hot issues, especially the second one. But let me start with the first. Look, um, uh, as we know, um, it, well, let me start by in, in environmental um, law, there is a principle called the non-regression principle, which is that once you have set a standard at a certain level, you shouldn't go back. Now, we've seen countries walking out of conventions, etc. So the, it's not an enforceable principle, but it's a powerful principle. And I uh, would very much want to see that on the one hand, these promises are made, but that countries, and it's up to us, um, uh, that we understand that, that, that this is in our self-interest. Um, and all we could be so selfish, so as to think that we will live the high life and to hell with our children. Uh, but that should not be how we are. But the human condition is one that we look more at what is closer time in the linear setting than what is further out. So I think that what, what we would like to see is obviously trans, uh, targets that are transparent, that are monitorable, that are uh, reported on in a transparent way. That's why MRV monitoring and reporting and verification is such a hot button issue that didn't make it into the, the, the Paris Accord, which is why we now have these NDCs, nationally determined contributions. But ensuring that this is, if I said I was gonna do this in Paris, the idea is that in Glasgow, I will stretch. So how much am I going to stretch and what's the equity around that? Um, because we, we know that there are countries that still don't have 100% energy access and they need energy access, but they need access to technology and they need financing. So I think what we would like to see is a very stretched set of NDCs delivered in Glasgow and for the world to hold this to account and for every think tank and anyone else to dive into this and to begin to understand, because we at UNEP, we can put this out, 
But for every student to begin to understand this, and I'm aware that you have many other, on the border taxes, <laughs> uh, on, on the taxes on carbon, the Secretary General has called for a tax on carbon. It, we didn't get into Paris. Paris was a, a compromise. But the more states that come up with carbon taxes, the more this will drive. We know that we need to see... Um, some price. We can't assume that um, that what is that that um, the the environmental bads are public goods, so to speak, and and the and, and and that you can just the government has to take care of the price tag to this. So we need to understand that the pollution trail that we need leave behind has a price tag, and either governments will have to take it publicly through taxation, or we have to add it to the price of the product that has had a carbon trail. So I can only echo this SG and say, look, we are, and he has called for taxation on carbon. Over to you, Thomas. Inga, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I think we should move straight to the questions from the floor now, because we have plenty of them for you. And I'm going to start with the, the two most popular questions, actually, that have risen to the top of the tree. And they're both concerning a, a similar kind of issue, really. Um, Eugenie, who's doing an MSc in development management at the LSE, would like to know, what is your view on green growth? Do you think a green economy can be a growing economy? How can we best ensure environmental sustainability and inclusive growth? How can we shift away from economic growth? And the other question from Joe Williams at University of Bristol is I would be curious to hear your thoughts on the degrowth agenda. Is it time to rethink economic growth? So these two questions on a similar theme. Thank you. I think the green economy is the only future that we could consider, to be honest. At UNEP, we have a large green economy program. Um, and um, when we look at the price, and because we get this, we look at the science, the environmental health, the, the shifts that we're making to what we're taking for granted in terms of earth systems, you know, just the rainfall and the, the things we take for granted, but we look at this in quite some detail and we can, we, if, and we look at IPCC, which does the climate science and which we're proud to co-host. Uh, and we look at uh, the, the nature science and we see what is coming. We say, well, uh, there is no choice with nearly, by 2050, let's say 10 billion people on this planet, maybe we had a choice when we were a few millions roaming around. And we could assume that we could sort of extract from nature and just throw it back into nature when we were done with it, put it into the economy and throw it into nature when we're done with it. <laughs> that doesn't work anymore with so many people. So I think that what we are seeing is that countries that have made that reset or made that gear shift, economies, companies that have made those gear shifts, that are leaning in to make them, they're doing better. Because some assets will be stranded, this is a given, um, and other assets will be so toxic and destructive that people will not believe that they, that they existed. And so that's the reality that we need to understand. And the more governments get ahead of this, and, and in a regulatory setting, in an incentivized setting, ensure that we can have both carrots and sticks, uh, the better it will be. The question from Joe Williams was on, can you just give me the keyword? Um, would it be, uh, curious to hear your thoughts on the degrowth agenda. Degrowth, yes. So, I mean, look, let's understand that we are still in a world where we have a vast uh, uh, 800 million people going to bed hungry every night. We have people who live in extreme poverty and we need to understand that COVID has made this much worse. So the inequity is a real issue. So there are countries that absolutely need to have a growth agenda and unapologetically so. But it is probably about where we should see more consumption and where we, we, we should see a less uh, consumption and where we should understand and the more consumption, obviously, in, in the, is in the places where people are, are, where we have high degrees of poverty and global, uh, therefore, uh, inequity at the global level. But we, those of us who live in wealthier economies, need to question whether we need all the stuff <laughs> and whether we need to have that throwaway culture and what it is that we, and what kind of footprint we are having 
And so rather than going into the degrowth and, and growth, I would say let's talk about global equity and let's ensure that in the policies that we have, we don't have this diverging uh, between the two worlds um, because that can only lead to no good also in the peace and uh, peace uh, uh, agenda um, as we are seeing. And lastly, if I could just add, it's no coincidence that if you take a map and you look at where climate climatic factors uh, have had the hardest impact, just take a map across the world. It's no coincidence that that's where the UN has peacekeepers. That's where you have um, where you have um, environmental implosion. That's often where you have societal implosion too. And so understanding these connects and being showing solidarity from the wealthier countries is also important. Thanks. Um, now, I know the World Conservation Monitoring Centre that sits under UNEP uh, does a lot of work on ecosystem services and payments for ecosystem services. And there are a number of questions in the chat about natural capital. Uh, and it's just bouncing around my screen. So I have to go... Uh, well, I have one here from Karina Moxon, an LSE alumni and uh, current MSc environmental technology student at Imperial College London, who's asking, how do you propose natural capital is incorporated into political and economic decision making? Um, and I do have another question from uh, Johanna, who is in Uppsala, and I'll just find that uh, for you. Yes, here it is. Um, what is your view on maximum income, uh, setting a limit to how much people are allowed to earn as a mean to address unsustainable behavior that follows wealth? And sorry, there was another question from Joanna that does relate to um, natural capital. It just keeps getting voted up the tree, so it keeps disappearing from my screen. Do you see any issues with speaking of nature in monetary terms? There we go. That's the question about natural capital. Is a shift towards speaking of values beyond capital possible and or desirable? Thank you. Um uh, so, Karina, thank you. Um, you know, when I was at the World Bank, we were playing around with um, with wealth accounting, uh, national natural wealth accounting, and economics of ecosystem services. And a lot of countries, including at the time the UK, were experimenting not on the national accounts, but besides the national accounts, what that would look like. And it's very, very interesting and very revealing. So I think it begins at statistics. I think it begins at understanding, because today actually politicians don't know what the natural wealth, natural wealth that they are responsible for in their constituency, in their country. They just don't know. And they don't know what the degradation of that capital is. And that to me is remarkable when we understand that that's only the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe. <laughs> it's kind of the engine of our very existence. And yet politicians and you and I don't know what it is and how we are degrading it other than these sort of snip snippets that we hear in the news. So it begins with understanding. That's why the UN Statistical Office, together with the World Bank, together with a number of countries, are working on this issue and UNEP obviously is right in there with science and with lots of stuff um, and 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 the more we begin to understand and the more governments begin to understand this and then speak about um, wealth accounting more broadly and includes natural capital in this because they understand that a degradation of natural capital will have impacts on 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 their country and let's go back to to early industrialization london and let's understand that it was cholera that made the, the politicians understand we better get something done about sewerage and water supply so it was that understanding different natural capital but uh, an understanding that degradation of environment has a cost and that cost has to be uh, mitigated and it's better to avoid everybody getting cholera uh, than, uh, than, and then to go in then have that happen. So I think that it is a responsibility that needs to go more and more central in government and in treasuries and in, um, in overall uh, uh, finance ministries and national accounts. Um, and 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 on Joanna's other and the Karina's other question on uh, do I see a problem? And I try to say that here with with putting with putting a value at, at nature. No, 
That doesn't mean that I don't get the intrinsic value. That doesn't mean that I don't stand in awe of that sunrise over the ocean. That doesn't mean that I don't understand that nature is also part of people's faith fabric. That doesn't mean that I don't get that it's inspirational in art. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that nature has a right to exist without humans. I mean, in and of itself. But if we don't understand that, yes, we can fish the waters empty in one quarter or cut the forest down and have a great bumper quarterly profit, but then it's over. Well, that's kind of natural capital. If we don't understand that what the what the wetlands do in terms of storing carbon, well, that's kind of, so we can drain them and have an agricultural field, but think of all the CO2 we are releasing. So I get that maximum income. Um, Look, um, I think that's that's not really where we would talk, but we would, I mean, taxation matters. <laughs> and so ensuring that there is a, a degree of taxation that enables that, um, that those environmental bads that today are borne by the broad public are attributed to those that cause it. It's back to the old pollution, uh, polluter pays principle is a way of thinking about this. And there in we are back to the carbon tax as an example of that. I'll hand it back to you, Thomas. Thanks again, Inga. Um, quite a lot of questions about the, the pace of change and the pace of response um, of international society, I guess. And uh, there's a good question here summed up by Julia, who's a BSc international social and public policy student at the LSE. In your opinion, how significant is policy procrastination for the clearly insufficient global action on climate change? How can we help decrease this? It seems to me that the awareness and the funds to tackle climate change are there. So it might be that the policy procrastination is the reason for insufficient action. Thank you, Julia. <laughs> um, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Look, um, and in part, it is because the politicians are afraid of the voters, right? Uh, because we are a selfish species that don't understand the, as we spoke uh, earlier on, don't sort of get the temporal nature of what it is we're dealing with. And, and therefore, we would like, we, we don't want to see the implications here. But yes, the only way to give courage to those that we have put in leadership positions is to ensure that we hold them to account and that we continue to um, insist uh, and mobilize for this one planet that we know and that we have. Um, and, and so I think um, I can, you know, as someone who was at the earliest of climate cops, I cannot believe that it's more than a quarter of a century. I just cannot believe that it's 26 years. Well, actually, it'll be 27 by the time we hit COP26. And I just, I, I am aghast that that happened because when we went to COP1, 2, and 3, we knew that it was about mitigation. At that point, actually, adaptation was something we said, why do we need to adapt? We just need to do the right thing, which is to mitigate. Now we want to adapt because we can see we can't mitigate completely. So, Julia, please keep speaking up, speaking out, uh, engaging, and making sure that those that we put in government are held to account for the promises that they make. Thanks. Um, of course, that question was about uh, policy procrastination in response to climate change. We have a good question here from Leopold Schwartz-Schutter, a geography student at um, LSE, um, currently in Madrid. What is your view on the singular focus of many policymakers on climate change? Is it justified that biodiversity loss is largely neglected in discussions about environmental protection? And perhaps I would add to that question, you know, do you agree that it is largely neglected or, or not? You know, um, a couple of years ago, I want to say maybe there was a there was a um, a newspaper that uh, that I wish or an article that looked at mentions media mentions of climate change versus biodiversity since Rio de Janeiro 1920, 1992. and it was very interesting to track. So Rio biodiversity was more than climate because that was then climate hadn't made it big time. We hadn't had Katrina and we hadn't had these big disasters. And after that, you know, biodiversity just stays as a sort of incidental, coincidental mention and climate becomes more and more 
existentially mentioned by everyone. So yes, I do believe that what we have seen is because people people have seen climate change impacts more up close and personal, which is normal, right? They've seen the fires, they've seen the harvest failures, they live in drought, they've seen um, people migrating or fleeing out of drought prone areas, they've seen inundations, they've seen storms like they've never known before. This is real. And it's hard to understand what it means to lose 1 million species out of 7.8. But here's the thing. These are not sort of competitors. You can't have one without the other. Let's understand that climate is regulated by one thing and it's regulated by ocean and it's regulated by our biomass and by our high, by our, our vegetation, especially obviously tropical forests. So we better, and, and uh, biodiversity is finely attuned where each species is dependent on another. So you lose one, you can have the whole system crumble. We speak about keystone species that kind of holds up the entire thing. So being being mindful that biodiversity is absolutely critical and saving and conserving biodiversity is good for climate and, conser- and, and preventing climate change is very good for biodiversity. Species are interde- uh, uh, um, uh, have interdependence. And what we are seeing with climate change is that we see these species shifts Some species migrate on the basis of heat. Some species migrate on the basis of moisture. Some species migrate on the basis of light. And and when you shift these things, and this has been set in place over millennia, when you shift these things, you know, ecosystems collapse. And we're already seeing that in places, and it's not a good thing. So we need to ensure, Leopold, that there's an understanding of that interconnectedness. And the good thing about COP26 and the UK uh, chair incoming chair is that they are precisely seeking to 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 mix to not mix but to bring that understanding to the fore which of course we at UNEP and in the conventions have set for for a long time it's really good to have a chair that speaks to that point thanks i'm quite glad this particular question has come up because it's been very topical in the news recently about the importance of carbon capture solutions and carbon dioxide removal this is a question from adrienne planteau a PhD candidate uh, in global prosperity at UCL. They're asking, do you think that in the past, policymakers have overly believed in the potential of technologies to tackle the environmental issues? I do, because it's a way we can kick the, kick the can down the road. Uh, and so it's, it's politically convenient when, when some politicians may not wish to speak to the reality of these complex scientific issues, right? Well, science will solve it. And we've heard that um, over the decades. But look, the best carbon capture and removal that we have is called trees. You know, it really is. And so, you know, don't degrade, don't degrade ecosystems, don't drain peatlands, conserve peatlands. UK has amazing peatlands. Uh, d- make sure that um, support is given to tropical forests. Don't buy uh, and or make sure you your timber and your products, palm oil, what have you, soy that you feed to your cows or wherever you are, that that is deforestation free. It's those kind of areas that we need to invest in. I I do recognize, and the IPCC recognizes, that even if we do all that we need to do, we will still need to think about solutions on carbon capture. But that is not and cannot be a get-out-of-jail-card-free. Because I fear that if we sort of put all the eggs in the technology basket, uh, we are not going to do the right thing. We must decarbonize our economies. And even when we've done so, we still need to capture what we've already put, as I said, in the bathtub. So let's understand how, how the carbon budget hangs together. Uh, that would be uh, that would be critical. And so, uh, so it's right to raise this and, and we need to be very cautious about it. Thanks. I've um, got a couple of questions now on, well, looking to the future, I guess, and the, the education of our next generation of voters and leaders. There's a question here from Alexa Bocamp, um, who's a student on a very pertinent degree to this discussion, I think, the BSc in Environmental Policy with Economics at LSE. And she asks, what do you think will be the role of education for the transition to a low-carbon economy? Some students in Europe do not learn about climate change until the age of 14, 
and looking at higher education, even at the LSE, sustainable business and finance is not a compulsory part of an economics or finance degree. Where do we need to start? And kind of complementing this somewhat, Nicholas Watts asks about your personal experience of working across multiple policy spaces, such as the World Bank, the IUCN, UNEP, etc. What would your advice be to today's graduate students in the value of this complementary experience and how to achieve it? Um, thank you. Let me start with Alexa. Um, look, it should come as no surprise that this executive director of UNEP thinks that we need to start at the very, very earliest age of children uh, to understand planet Earth, um, that you can't take it for granted. Um, I think indigenous faiths and beliefs teaches some of the most fundamental and foundational um, thoughts about Mother Earth, about we are here for one purpose, which is to take care of Earth. We can learn a lot from some traditional faiths and indigenous peoples, because it, we in this modern fast society, we've kind of forgotten some of those old beliefs, um, which I would say uh, are, are critical. So, um, and the truth is that the youngest children, uh, this uh, past year we ran between uh, Earth Day and World Environment Day, Earth School, we had millions and millions of children participating all over the world in Earth School. And there were little experiments. We ran it together with Ted um, and it was amazing. So I think kids are naturally curious and everyone who has children know that all these little experiments that you can do there, you learn about water running downstream and that it can evaporate and how it evaporates and what happens when you heat up and so on is important. And then, so I would obviously encourage, and, and Alexa is right, that education matters. And then it goes further because once we go into graduate education, let's understand that today, for example, our engineers in engineering school, they learn about the hard engineering. They learn about concrete and steel. I'm being unfair because they learn about more, but just to make my point here, but they don't learn about nature's infrastructure too much, right? In some schools they do, but how we can invest in mangroves to protect the community, how coastal forests will break the wind, how trees in cities will bring down temperatures um, and so on. And it's understanding this multidisciplinary learning that is good for the environment that we need to have happen. Um, so I hope that Alyssa, you will think about that in the, in the courses that you're doing. Now, uh, Nicholas Watts, uh, I, I, of course, I mean, I've been so privileged in my own journey to um, work in UNDP, to work in the World Bank, to work in IUCN and now at UNEP, uh, and in long stretches. Um, and I would advise anyone who wishes to step into this environment, the, the, the environment policy kind of space, that uh, an environment economics space to to find any on-ramp, be it on an NGO, uh, be it in a scientific think tank, be it um, as in education, uh, because these on-ramps can open up new doors. I think it's about curiosity and continuing to work in the job, but also beyond the job. Uh, that matters and networking and getting an understanding of the opportunities that lie. Um, I was never sort of a, a company woman that just stayed in the one place, but it was a mission that um, was the fire in the belly for me. And I think that that's what I see in most young people as well. Thanks. I should probably say that uh, embedding sustainability into our education is certainly part of LSE's sustainability strategic plan, which was uh, launched last year. And I'm looking forward to personally working on that myself. Um, anyway, um, moving on, I think, again, drawing on your personal experience, Inga, I have a question here from Grace Couch, who is a climate project officer for Swale Borough Council. And they're asking, what would be your advice for overcoming bureaucracy when proposing climate initiatives and trying to take action, even if it isn't always easy or conducive to existing policies and often comes with a short term cost? You know, I think, um, well, thank you, Grace, first of all, because this is that it's sort of back to the first question uh, that we had on, on procrastination from Julia. I think that um, sometimes it's on the too difficult list for a council that is uh, not used to dealing with something this complex 
and then you can sort of delegate upwards that to the next level in the in the in the hierarchy and it ends up being the prime minister's problem right but the problem the issue is it's everybody's problem it's yours and mine and so i would i would suggest you know obviously having your facts right having i mean but you are an lsc uh, um uh, I, I don't know actually if you're in LSE, but anyway, you are in this talk. And so um, so having your facts right, having your science right, having having the references right, what, what has worked elsewhere and what didn't work and why this makes smart sense. And I bet you that the majority of people, voters, if they knew about this, they would support it. The trouble is that it gets misrepresented many times so people only see it as an irritant or as something. But I have seen uh, in, in, in my country of birth, Denmark, how, you know, recycling now is just, it's not even an issue. It's been there since I was a little girl. And, you know, nearly 50 years later, it's just, it's just happening. And so I think that if you just make those decisions and stick with them and they are factual and not, not political, and don't politicize what is just evidence, data, and facts. I think one can get far. So that's the best advice that I can give to Grace. Thanks. We don't have too much more time, and we've had 108 questions posted wow. um, on the Zoom, and that's not including the Facebook questions as well. So incredible response from our audience. So a massive thank you to all of you who have contributed questions. But this is quite a broad question, and it's from Ren an A-level student in Singapore. So it's quite late there right now. So thank you for joining us. Um, and it also relates to some of my work as well. But should, should poorer countries address environmental issues when the basic needs of their own people are not being met? I think a good example, you pointed out the example of palm oil, for example, a very important cash crop in the region of Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. And it's very difficult for us to say we really shouldn't be doing this when it's bringing prosperity and it's bringing people out of poverty. So how would you address this question about that, that dichotomy? I, well, I, as I tried to say in my talk, I think that that is a, um, a fallacy. And I think, and Ren, thank you for staying up this late. This is massive. But I think it's a fallacy and it's this old dichotomy of putting environment against economic growth. And, and and saying that we can pollute our way to wealth. There was a time, and the inequity in this is, is astounding, right? There was a time when you could, because you could uh, occupy other countries and you could extract from those in, through the colonial era and you could um, um, get your garbage to go somewhere else and you could pollute your way to wealth because the pollution was not visible in your backyard. But it is now. And right now, January 1, the UNEP uh, managed um, convention, Basel, makes it illegal to export plastic waste, just as a beginning. And we're very proud of that. And that is it, right? So I, I get that, yes, we, we need, we have palm oil and this exists now. But let's get efficient and effective palm oil on the fields where it exists. Now is not the time to destroy more uh, tropical forests uh, and virgin forests, but making sure and making sure that uh, poor uh, farmers get the benefits out of out of what they are producing, uh, and ensuring that we do so sustainably. So no, um, I have seen in Africa, Ren, where countries get that the environment. They cannot, because it's so fragile in many countries, that unless you really take good care of it, um, you can end up with an environment that can no longer sustain you. Today, we have over 2 billion hectares of degraded land, moon landscape kind of lands, which we could put back into working landscapes, which we could put back into agriculture, but we haven't done so part because of poverty. And, and so it's, it's getting, getting those uh, issues understood and understanding that investing in nature's bounty is not only good for the current generation, but also for the next. And yes, there will be trade-offs at times. So we shouldn't be Pollyannish about this. But the trade-off then, just like uh, what we're speaking around climate change, has to be well understood about leaving no one behind and ensuring that we support those most vulnerable in the transition. 
thank you so much, Inga. I, I'm afraid we, we're going to have to wrap it up there because um, we have reached the end of our hour. Um, there were so many questions yet to be answered. I think we could have gone on for another hour, but um, uh, I, and I do apologize if you haven't had your question answered, but I tried to pick ones that were all kind of closely related. Um, thank you, Inga, very much. I'll, I'll, I'll let Manoush uh, wrap things up. Thank you, Thomas, for moderating all those questions. And I just wanted to close by thanking Inga for a wonderful talk that I think left all of us convinced, but also compelled to do something. The fact that we had over 500 participants in this direct call, plus thousands more on Facebook and no doubt thousands more on the podcast, plus over 112 questions, which I think must be a record for one of these events that I've done, shows you the depth of feeling and interest and commitment that there is to doing something about the planet. I think you've provided enormous leadership in your current role, but also played a role as a, as a, as a, as a great public spokesperson on this issue. And I, I, for one, feel a lot more optimistic that the momentum for action has never been greater in the world. And hopefully we'll be celebrating that progress in the years to come. Thank you again, Inga. And thanks to everyone for joining us for this wonderful event. Please do send it to colleagues, share it with others online. Uh, and please do join us for other events at LSE. Thank you so much.